Welcome to the Moonshots podcast. Uh, hello to everyone. I'm your co-host, Mike Parsons. And as per usual, I am joined by the man himself, Mr. Chad Owen. Hi, Mike. How are you? Doing well. I know you're on voca- vacation in, in Colorado. What's it like out there right now? Oh, it's beautiful. The sun's about to set and I'm looking over the mountains. I cannot complain. Well, enjoy it as we jump into another episode of Moonshots. And we have a really exciting show today because um, we have uh, much to offer you, not only in a great deep dive into one of the greatest living innovators, but today, July 21st, 2017, episode four, we are going to bring a special guest. Chad, would you like to introduce to the listeners our very special guest? Of course. We are joined today with Gary Hoover. He is the founder of Hoover's, Hoover's.com, and also the founder of Bookstop, the first big box book superstore uh, down in in Austin, Texas. Why don't you say hello to everyone, Gary? Hi. How is everybody today all over the world? It's great to be here. Well, thanks for jumping on the show, Gary. Uh, For our listeners, I think... uh, I have to have to say I have to thank Chad for coming up with the idea of bringing on a guest. I think it's something we'd love a lot of feedback uh, from you, the listeners, as we've been getting tons of good feedback. Which uh, I'll read some of that later in the show. But Chad, this was your idea to bring Gary on. Tell tell us why you thought uh, Gary would be able to to offer us some interesting thoughts and, and ideas on uh, on the moonshots. Yeah. Well. First of all, Gary's a fellow University of Chicago graduate, and um, I think we pride ourselves on being lifelong learners. So I wanted to bring Gary onto the show today because I know he has an immense library. I mean, h- how many titles do you have at this point, Gary? Uh, about 57,000 books. Yeah, he's essentially bought a building to house all of his books, and he, he kind of lives in the, corn- in the corner, right, <laughs> right Gary? <laughs> That's for sure. And I think it's fair to say, Gary, that um, when we were in our pre-show phase uh, an hour or so ago, and uh, I mentioned that we're recording with me here in Sydney, Gary said, well, you know, I've given a ton of talks, uh, I've been to conferences all over Australia, and I think it's fair to say um, that you are not only a sought-after uh, innovation and entrepreneurial thinker, you're also a, a published author and just a man brimming with history and ideas, which, is it fair to say, all loosely uh, coupled by entrepreneurialism, innovation, new ideas, things that, that disrupt the status quo? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I grew up in a General Motors factory town in Indiana. And as a kid, I mean, it was a town of 60,000 people and 27,000 worked at General Motors. So it was life itself. And nobody can answer my questions. I say, well, who started this and why did they start it? And is it a good company or a bad company? And are the people that run it smart or not? And uh, nobody, none of the teachers could answer my questions. And I discovered Fortune, the big American business magazine, and started subscribing when I was 12 years old. So, And I'm now 66. So for 54 years, I've been studying enterprises. At first, I was obsessed with uh, large companies. But I've gone on to do, I don't know, seven or eight startups of my own and um, teach entrepreneurship. I was at the University of Texas at their business school as entrepreneur in residence and 
speak all over the world. So I'm really just fascinated. How do people achieve great things? How do they work together in groups, whether it's a for-profit or a non-profit organization? What makes a great leader? What makes a great enterprise? Uh, how do they how do they survive over the years? So many companies are around for a couple or three years and get sold and then everything changes. And just to me, nothing is more fascinating than how enterprises are built uh, of all different types in every industry and in every corner of the globe. Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, this well, is thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, and once, oh, once my pleasure. Once again, we need to thank Chad because not only did he recommend uh, you as uh, as a guest on the show, but Chad, you you recommended you were absolutely in the corner for for this entrepreneur and innovator that we're going to do a deep dive in. Do you want to set it up for us? Well, it was all because of, of Gary, really. He uh, he sends out a, a great newsletter at Hoover's World and with the title of, you know, the greatest living innovator. And Mike, you know, seeing as you and I have been doing a podcast for a couple of weeks now about the greatest innovators, I my my ears kind of perked up and it was a name that I didn't know, Fred Smith, who founded FedEx back in 1972. And uh, so Gary's bold claim that he was the greatest living innovator um, you know, I wanted to uh, do my research and and see if that was a you know was a credible claim. Yeah, the the greatest active because uh, Bill Gates is still alive, but uh, uh, Fred is still running the company he started, which is un- almost unbelievable. It is, it is. So we're going to dive really into the world of uh, of Fred Smith from FedEx. Uh, it is a remarkable story. I want to point out to our listeners, there is a lot to learn here. And it's more than just the technology and the automation that underlies FedEx. I think there there is yet on this show uh, to be an entrepreneur that can offer you so many great thoughts, so simple and concise, not only about how to create a great company, but I think how to live your life as a leader and how to get the most out of uh, every single day. So before we jump into the clips uh, of Fred, let's let's swing over to the news tracker and track what's been happening with uh, the companies and entrepreneurs that we've covered so far in the show. And um, I think when we, when we look at Tesla and, and Elon, I think it has to be the news of the week was definitely the first Model 3 uh, the first production model has actually hit the road, which was a little bit of a surprise for everyone. I think it was a little ahead of schedule, which is a little bit unlike uh, Tesla, a little bit uh, infamous for some slight delays in production. Gary, did you get a chance to get your eyes on the Model 3 yet? Did you did you see the, the metal on the road? Uh, no, I haven't seen one yet. I saw the pictures online and everything. So I can tell you that it's, it's actually it's a really nice uh, vehicle. And uh, for the for the listeners, one of the most innovative things that Elon actually did with this is that he asked his customers who would like to purchase this car last year to put a down payment on the car more than a year before they would receive it, and thousands of people did it. So he raised hundreds of millions of dollars from his customers with no interest charges, with no dilution of shares to fund the production, which was just another uh, innovation, um, absolutely breathtaking in terms of what a smart way to raise capital. 
And I can tell everyone that the 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 Tesla three, it's a very curvy uh, Tesla. Chad, did you get a chance to look at the photos? Yeah, I mean, it, it's very tempting, you know, to put down that uh, that deposit. But uh, I think for all of their vehicles, they really hit the designs out of the park. They do. They are beautiful. What's the sticker price on the uh, new one? Do you know, it's actually not so much. I believe uh, starting it starts at thirty five thousand US. Yes, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. yeah. So it's a better value. Yeah. Uh, no, you know the whole thing of the deposits that's been around a long time. I think John DeLorean did that and then got sued out the wazoo. <laughs> um, and uh, but you know, hey, Kickstarter. Um, yeah. There's a game producer, Chris Roberts in Austin. He's raised over $100 million for his uh, game he's currently developing without giving up a penny of equity. Right. Now, here's an interesting question, Gary. If Ford or GM tried to ask for a cool 5K up front a year before the car was, was due, do, do you think they'd have many takers on one of their cars? I think it totally depends on the product. Yeah. I think it's really unlikely that they would have a product that would, uh, uh, you know, justify that. Maybe if they put a uh, Neiman Marcus name on it, <laughs> on it or something. But, uh, you know, no, I really think it's about the product and how hungry people are. You know, I don't know if you remember Beanie Babies and everything else when there's a shortage of the product. And some luxury marketers really believe in shortages mm. and making people clamor and think, oh, I better get it now or I'll never get one. And, yes. and uh, yeah, people have done that for private jets. You know, put down big deposits when the plane was first announced. Yeah. So it's not a wholly new idea, but uh, but it's certainly a very well. In my bookstore chain, we were the first one to have a loyalty program, and people paid us money. We'd raise a hundred thousand dollars at the grand opening of a store, and that helped finance the inventory, which gave us the broad selection, which is what the customers loved. Wow. And we essentially gave it back to them as a discount over the course of the year. That worked out, so they came out ahead, but it helped. Uh, fund our business. So I, I've always believed that um, looking at your customers and suppliers as a source of capital, yeah. in addition to debt and equity, uh, most people skip those those two and they have them, they and your employees have the most to gain from the success of your enterprise. Mm, mm. Well, you know, uh, there was also some good automotive news uh, for Uber last week and probably some first good news in a while. Um, Waymo, who was tussling around with Uber over, you know, the alleged theft of patents and so forth, Waymo has actually dropped their claims uh, with, with Uber. So perhaps this signals the start of quieter times for Uber and uh, helps them get back on track, obviously, after Travis uh, resigned as a CEO. So, well, not so fast there, Mike, because uh, wasn't there an HBR article? Oh, <laughs> yeah. essentially saying that Uber is, is fundamentally illegal and that it should be shut down. Oh, my gosh. Um, so, um, you know, I, I read this article. We'll have it in the show notes on moonshots.io. It was a pretty visceral attack uh, establishing that Uber is fundamentally illegal. And it did an interesting thing, and it paralleled uh, the fact that it's an illegal business which was why they had so much struggles with their internal culture. He's, you know, the, the author really argued that these two things were connected, which I thought was quite an interesting idea. We've got, got a link to it in the show notes. Have a listen. It, it felt a little, um, a little deliberate in, in going after them. I don't know if it was clickbait or something more than that. 
But it is interesting because there is this fine line when companies are challenging the status quo between staying in the interests of customers and the community versus breaking rules that are there for a reason. Gary, they're probably, they're probably not the first company in history to ride that line. What comes to mind when you think of other companies that have sort of sailed that very fine line? Oh, goodness, over and over again. And I, I haven't read the Harvard uh, Business uh, Review article. First time I've heard, to, uh, heard them referred to as possibly offering clickbait. But, um, they, um, yeah, I heard Steve Case, he came to Austin and spoke, and he was, he was, uh, it was down on what Uber was doing. This was a couple of years ago. In terms said, look, we can't fight government. We've got to work with them and partner with them. Uh, but the reality is we have all these laws on the books. You know, I may or may not know Austin was a center of a big fury and still hasn't died down where the city council kicked Uber out. Uh, yes. And everybody said, well, yes. we don't want to defer to this big company with all its money and all that evil. And the reality, if you study from an economics viewpoint, is that um, uh, the city council was defending the taxi monopoly, mm-hmm. which had been put in place for many years. And a big private equity firm in Houston owned all the big cab companies in Texas. Nobody knew that or talked about that. Being a business researcher, I dug into it right away. And it's really it's uh, the the old monopoly fighting the incoming disruptor. Uh, Thomas Edison tried to shut down the the, the big movie industry. It's a more complex story than that, but Adolf Zucker, who really created the uh, the first great studio, Paramount, uh, he, he did a bunch of illegal things. Um, there have been retailers. Uh, it was in Queens, New York, a guy named Jerry, and he did TV ads. He opened on Sunday, hmm. and of course, that was against the law, hmm. and so he was in jail. He did a TV ad from jail saying, look, customers, I've gone to prison for you. Uh, Costco and people like that, um, they fought resale price maintenance, which gave... Re- um, manufacturers the right to set prices and they won that was made illegal and an apple and a bunch of people went to court and got it changed some years ago so that now we're back to where we were in the 30s and 40s where uh, the manufacturer could demand a retailer use their prices or not not be shipped mm. um i i tend to be on the side of the disruptors we have a lot of laws on the books that have been there for a long time. Nobody knows why they're there, uh, well, except the monopolist. And, and the only time when the monopoly really works uh, is when the government defends it. And so you've really, um, it's a very complex issue and everything, but no, no, a long history of uh, uh, Southwest Airlines spent, I think, two or three years in the courts just trying to get the right to fly right. because the big players, American and Braniff, if you remember that one, uh, they said, oh, no, we can't let this right. upstart come in. They can't do this and they can't do that. And Fred Smith fought a lot of that, too. Yeah, yeah and it, Fred Smith encountered this when he was fighting the regulations shortly after Southwest was was kind of winning their regulation battles because the government wouldn't allow planes without people, you know, to make these trips. And and FedEx was the first, you know, all package, no passenger airline. And the government's, you know, laws and regulations just simply wouldn't let them fly their planes. And they wouldn't let them fly bigger planes later on. No, he he fought a lot of battles. So, so the, the, the fight against regulation and monopolies is, is a big theme, not only uh, for, for some particular industries or companies, particularly that, that heavier industry type, but you know, if you look at entrepreneurs like Branson, 
I would argue that his actual strategy is to enter categories where there is a monopoly protected by regulators, and he just calls it out and says, big, bad, ugly, evil empire, let's fight against it. I think that's his whole business strategy. Uh, he certainly did that with um, British Airways. I, my first visit to Australia, uh, being a transportation lover, and my first company I started on my college campus was a charter bus company. And so I have this odd fascination with buses and motor coaches. So I get to, um, I, I went to Brisbane first. And as soon as I got there, one of the first places I went to was the bus station. And there I saw all these people traveling long distances across Australia in uh, buses. And that that had already essentially gone away in the United States with the rise of cheap airfares in Southwest and everything. It's come back now. The bus industry is growing for the first time in the U.S. in many years uh, due to new innovators and disruptors. But in any case, I go to the Brisbane bus station. I'm like, what is going on here? Here's this relatively affluent society, and they're traveling these long distances by bus instead of airplane. And, and I said to myself, I said, hey, it means one thing. It means the airline industry is, is uh, under regulation and is set up to uh, serve business travelers and keep prices high. And I said to myself, man, what an opportunity for somebody to come in and bring in low fares. But it would be a big fight. And I think it was two or three years after that. It was certainly after that that Branson went into Australia in the airline business. That's right. So, so that theme goes also, uh, if you take a look at the incumbent telecommunications provider in Australia, Telstra. Um, oh, yeah. Same for them as it is for Qantas in the airlines. The interesting thing about Australia for our listeners that are uh, based outside of the country is that Australia is roughly the size of America, but only with 20 plus million people. Not the what is it uh, three three hundred three hundred fifty million people live in the U.S. Yeah, yeah, somewhere in that range. So yeah. what I want you to imagine is essentially America with a fifteenth of the people. So there has it's New York City. New, New York has about twenty twenty one million in the metro there you area. Go. So the argument always is that you know high regulation and government protection is required because you can imagine running uh, infrastructure in Australia is very expensive because. It's geographically as big as America, but you don't have the population uh, the size of the U.S. that's paying taxes. So it's a, it's a tricky, tricky balance there. But for sure, it really hurts us. Um, one of the, without doubt, surprising things in returning to Australia was going from a home internet connection in uh, San Francisco that was well in excess of 100 megasecond. And the best I can do in Australia is 35. Uh, and a lot of the country has very expensive data plans and so forth. So prime uh, prime for Richard Branson and many other innovators. But let's talk about our, our final uh, innovator before we get into, into Fred, which is obviously Jeff Bezos and Amazon. Um, a lot of positive feedback on that show. So thank you to everyone that, that did listen. Since recording the show, uh, Amazon had a, a small event, which was their Amazon Prime Day, which turned out to be the biggest day for them in many respects, the most sales, but they also had the most new customer signups in a day in their history. And um, it just speaks to the the potential and the scale of Amazon. But I have a question for, for Chad and Gary. Do either of you guys remember a couple of years ago when the first Amazon Prime Day actually occurred? I don't. It was like two or three years ago, and it was a flop. 
It was an absolute flop. Uh, they were accused of baiting customers. They would have like literally an inventory of 100 products that were ridiculously cheap and dragging everyone in. And, and it became like a, like a farce. The first Amazon Prime Day three or four years ago, it was, it was a complete joke. And in a very short time, they've turned it into the biggest single retail moment in the company's history. And I want well, to They're point- estimating almost a billion dollars in sales just in one day. One day. One day. Uh, now, if that's not a testament to a learning organization to turn around what was in all, in essence, a flop only a few years ago to the biggest retail day. And they've still got all those great uh, American traditional days for big sales. Um, so this is just their day. This is just their sale. No, and, and that's a classic case of taking money from your customers and having them help finance your business. And I think you can make a case that their entire corporate profits uh, are, are less than uh, what they take in in prime revenues. And that's the same model as Costco, which, uh, you know, charges an annual fee. The great innovator Saul Price invented that concept in the 1970s in San Diego. And, um, and Amazon just last year in 2016, uh, for the first time, passed up Costco to become the largest company uh, in revenues headquartered in the state of Washington. Yeah. Yeah. Not surprising. Not surprising. Well, let's segue to another enormous company, but it certainly didn't start like that. And that is FedEx. And uh, we're going to talk about Fred Smith. We have managed to get our hands on a very recent interview um, that he did um, on, in fact, it was June 20 of this year, and he did it with the Tennessee governor, Bill Haslam. And my first comment uh, on the, the, the interview was, having lived in the U.S., this was the most folksy uh, Tennessee uh, conversation by two true blue guys. Um, this is like a really charming interview, isn't it? I, yeah, yeah, I really enjoyed it. So, so to set the scene for for our listeners, you've got Fred Smith, the founder of FedEx. Uh, what's important to note here is Fred is still the CEO. Uh, the company now uh, sits at the remarkable size of five hundred thousand employees, and he was employee number one. He was CEO then. And he's CEO now, which is remarkable uh, in itself. Before we jump into the the clips that we've pulled from this, obviously there'll be a link uh, to the full interview on our show notes. Uh, you can get those at moonshots.io. But I want to ask you, Gary, what what stands out? What makes Fred uh, Smith from FedEx so special for you? Well, you know, he's run that company for 46 years, and there's plenty written and discussed about uh, is it a different breed of person that can create a company from the person that can really build and maintain a company. And, and you know, you saw Bill Gates or Henry Ford do both, but the vast majority of business leaders are one or the other. Fred Smith is an extreme case of, of a person who started it, dreamed it up, as a kid, essentially, or 20s, you know, in his 20s. And and now he's uh, 72 years old. Uh, the company is the lar- largest uh, airline in the world in revenue, the largest airline in the world in market capitalization. It's worth more than American and United combined. 
I think they did $58 billion in the, the last 12 months or whatever. Um, and he hasn't lost, lost control, uh, driven out, been driven out or sold out. Uh, and, and he's done a remarkable job. It's still an amazing company. It's, uh, the, has more employees than any other company that's listed among the hundred best companies to work for in America. Today, while I was listening to one of the interviews, my FedEx guy showed up and I uh, took my Amazon box from him and, and I said, I was just listening to Fred Smith on the internet. And he says, Oh yeah, he's quite a guy. Um, it, it really is exceptional. The Elon Musk and the Jeff Bezoses of the world have uh, 20 plus years to go to prove to me that they're of the caliber of Fred Smith. Yeah, very, very true. I thought it was remarkable, uh, and he spoke about it, in this, I mean, that the, the paper he wrote at college that was the outline of the idea for FedEx uh, which was that the, the economy was fundamentally changing and automation and, you know, of, uh, of, you know, shipping and delivery was going to be essential. Um, he actually received a, a C for the paper, um, which in the light of the last 46 years is, is just so striking that, that, uh, as a read, the idea, maybe it sounded audacious, maybe it didn't thread it together, but, Boy, did Fred Smith uh, stick with it, and, and and a remarkable journey, not only in his career but his entire life. So, I want to ask you, Chad, what what sticks out to you as some remarkable things uh, about Fred Smith? I think the two stories that that stand out to me is it took them about twenty or twenty one months to you know from idea and inception to making their first deliveries. And Fred Smith had all the salespeople go out and make sales calls and he was getting all the numbers back and they were saying, oh yeah, you know, we're going to have 3,000 packages on our, on our first day. And Fred Smith, he knew that that was way too high and he, he dug into the numbers himself and said, you know what, I'm going to cut that number by 90% to, to 300 packages, which was in his mind still kind of a, an ambitious goal. And what actually happened was the, their first night, the dis, you know, the the courier salesman, as they were called, they're not truck drivers, they're courier salesman, called in six packages to be delivered. <laughs> so he launches his company and he has six pack. He has about a dozen planes and six packages to deliver. And so you know, rather than you know fold up the company and 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 do this giant pivot, he spent four weeks revamped everything doubled his sales force and then they came back with you know a much 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 better volume of of packages and i just think everyone's talking about lean startup and you know learning and experimentation but i think fred and his management team were some of the first uh, at least in my, in my experience uh in in studying of history the the first you know team t- to really embody that mm. um you know and they they learned from the same people you know deming and and other, you know, you know, systems thinkers of the time. Yeah, I, I, I like that theme, Chad, you, that you're calling him almost as the original uh, lean startup uh, practitioner just some 46 years before Eric Ries or, got or, to Or, yeah, maybe not the original, but just a, a much earlier one. You know, I, I think, yeah. I think we, we can kind of forget to look at these examples from the past and, and, and learn from them. I think mm. that... I think there is is a lot to learn from from this story. And just another interesting aside, you know, he he put all of his money 
into the company to found it. And he even, his sister, he, his and his sister's, you know, inheritance he put into the company kind of against his sister's wishes. I mean, it worked out for, for them in the end. And when the checking account had $5,000 and they owed $32,000 to the fuel companies to pay for jet fuel, he comes back from Las Vegas after a weekend and his, his management team is like, well, wait a minute, where do we get 32000 dollars in the bank and he's like don't ask questions (laughs) from from vegas and his sisters his sisters actually sued him and he had to buy them out for just a few million dollars and i haven't gone to dig but i wonder if they later bought into uh fedex because you know he's clearly a multi-billionaire oh my gosh but no they were so upset they sued him took him to court yeah the scale and the and the the twists and turns in their story is is really remarkable. So I think that that sets us up perfectly to to jump into to the clips. And I I want to uh, point out for our listeners, we have got such a breadth of of insights and learnings for you. I think we're going to really tackle everything from uh, what happens at the very beginning of a company and and really knowing if there's a product market fit. There's some great life lessons around learning and motivation, and as a as a bit of a nod of the uh, of the cap to Jeff Bezos from our last episode, we've got a great comparison that Fred gives as the difference between Amazon and uh, and FedEx, which I found very helpful because. I, I was probably more on the Amazon camp than the FedEx camp prior to doing this research. So we've got a lot of a lot of goodies um, uh, for us uh, to get into. So let's start with the first clip, and I'm going to set this up for everyone. This this first clip is Fred talking about what happens for larger companies and how are they going to, and in this case, how FedEx tackles the idea of innovating while you're you're a large company and uh, to set the scene for those of you who are in small companies in startups you know you have a lot of flexibility um, and you know it's blue skies but obviously when you're in a large organization nobody wants to make the million dollar mistake and so a lot of large scale companies often end up suffering from what's being you know claimed caused called the the innovator's dilemma so you you know once you get big uh, the thing that that made you big ends up uh, squeezing the life out of you now fred tackles this in this first clip which is all about change and how you deal with that as a large organization so let's go to that first clip so we embrace change and at the heart of change is innovation because if you don't innovate quite frankly you die And um, we reward innovation, we encourage innovation, we don't punish uh, innovation attempts that that fail. So but let me stop so, saying, but how do you reward innovation in that larger structure? Because some of those innovative, innovative, creative people can think I can go do something on my own and I won't be limited within a salary structure of a fortune 10 and, company. And, and, and some of them do. And, and that's, that's a great thing for them if that's what they, what they want to do. But I think there are a lot of people inside the FedEx system that understand that we value innovation, we'll fund innovation, we'll take a chance. And, and that's hard to find, as you just mentioned, in a lot of very large companies. So I, I would propose to you, Gary, there are very few large companies that 
conquer that that innovator's dilemma, being able to do very disruptive new things once they become large. So when you heard this this clip, and in particular the fact that they don't punish for failure, what what was your takeout when you heard this from from Fred? Oh, uh, you know, obviously that's that's great. Uh, the real question is, does that really pervade the organization? Uh, how deep does it go? I was reading something today uh, uh, about um, oh, at their leadership institute inside Federal Express, and they take all their top people aside and for a week, and and uh, or the, the the comers, the the people that are going to become the leaders, and they go through this leadership university or institute or whatever they call it, and at the end of the week, uh, usually for Smith speaks with him and at this one session he was saying look I want you to come up with ideas and you need to we need to innovate and all this and then they all kind of like well but our boss doesn't always listen to us and everything and it was interesting one of the little insights came out of it was the uh, people organizing that said well uh, when you have a new idea for your boss do you just go in and talk to him about it or have you written up your idea and 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 not a single one of them had ever written one of their ideas and they talk about the critical importance of writing an idea down. It's one reason I'm maybe in the minority these days in believing in old-fashioned business plans, even just for yourself. Because as I point out in the thing I was reading, when you write it down, you have to think it through. You have to look at what you've said. It goes into print. That gives it a little more solidity. But just that process. But I, I think it's very difficult. I think it'll be very interesting to see what happens at Federal Express after Fred uh, retires or moves on mm. um, and how you maintain that because you're right. Uh, um, it, it appears very, very few big companies. Now, there are exceptions. You know, if you study 3M, which you could make the case is the only really durable high-tech yes. company in American history that's that's maintained its strength over, um, you know, 50, 60, 70 years. I mean, no, IBM couldn't pull that off. And it was the greatest technology company in American history, but it didn't last. I mean, it's still around, but it's a shell of its former self in so many ways. And, uh, just, and, just and on, neither will Microsoft or Apple, yeah, I just, would bet. You know? Just on IBM, I think uh, it was only a day or two ago they announced the something in the order of the 40th straight quarter of negative growth for the company. Um, oh, I missed I mean, that. No, that's yeah, really sad. I, yeah. uh, it, because it was it, it was the greatest tech company in American history, and what Thomas Watson Senior and Junior did was, is truly unbelievable and awesome. But mm. no, tech by its nature doesn't last. You know, I I've given talks and gotten some real pushback in the Austin area. You know, Samsung alone invested seven billion dollars in our town in um, new fab, you know, fabrication plants. And I'd always say, look, the chip plants are great, but in 20 years, the only thing I'm sure of is they aren't going to be there. You know, they aren't mm. going to be chip plants because of all technology by by definition moves, moves on. I said, uh, we need some chip plants like potato chip plants because a brewery or a potato chip plant or a soap plant has got a reasonable shot of being here in 50 or 100 years, but not not a tech factory. Mm. I think I think the the setup he did there, whereas he he basically says change change is a constant, and uh, you know he was he was referencing. Uh, help me out here, Chad. I think it, he was referencing Marcus Aurelius yes. when he was talking about change. This mm -hmm. was like, oh well, if Marcus Aurelius had it building the Roman Empire, that change was the only constant in life. 
it seems that 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 uh, point of view um, is is the starting point for why they push into innovation constantly and over time because they they are somehow able to accept change as a constant. And my my experience, Chad, you've made great films with some really large organizations uh, such as Nike, as well as uh, startups and so forth. But in your experience, you must see just how hard it is for larger organizations to embrace change and innovation. For, for me, it all comes down to the people involved. And Fred Smith, one of his kind of founding principles at FedEx was to invest first in their people, their own Federal Express employees mm. that would then deliver outstanding, exceptional service. So service is kind of the second pillar. And then great people and great service would deliver them profits. So everything he did was about people, service, and profits. And so I think for me, um, you know, even Gary, you talking to the FedEx guy delivering your Amazon package, he knew who Fred Smith was. He knew that he was an interesting guy. And I think, you know, the kind of joke is that, you know, FedEx people bleed purple uh, because they believe so much in the company and what they're doing. I think as a practical thing to go along with all that, too, is when you study it, you see FedEx has this open door policy and anybody, anytime at any level can walk into any officer. And Fred Smith, you know, himself meets with people at all levels of the organization. Herb Kelleher at Southwest Airlines, you know, it was a ritualistic thing. But every year, I think on the, the day after Thanksgiving, right, whatever their busiest day, you know, he handled baggage. And it was symbolic, and he just did it one day a year. But, man, the meaning that has to people. I always say when I meet a retail CEO, my first question is, what share of your time do you spend in the stores? And in this era, we are so caught up in the big deal, the transformative deal, the big announcement, the big merger, uh, what's going on with Wall Street, what's going on with Goldman Sachs. Uh, none of that matters. None of that matters, mm -hmm. ultimately. You know, mm -hmm. the less time you spend with accountants and lawyers and venture capitalists, the more time you spend on your business yeah. and your customers. I, I would say that the biggest thing that um, if, uh, you know, there's a listener out there who works at a large organization, I think uh, sandbagging a protective zone where experiments can happen that are free of risk is crucial. And I think that the, the most important thing to do is to make them small experiments where all large-scale innovation at large companies gets stuck is that things get too big, they require too many sign-offs. I think the biggest thing you can do if you're in a large organization, create a sandpit, create a small fun place for small experiments that are free of the, uh, the bureaucracy and the entanglement um, that comes with large organizations. And I think if you want to read up on this, if you want to go deeper on this, there is a great model for doing this. Uh, it's, a, it's a classic that I think Gary's going to give a big thumbs up to, and it's the Skunk Works methodology. Uh, this is such a great practice um, for creating small independent teams that are completely autonomous that can go off and make small experiments and work at a rapid rate. And I think this is truly a transformative practice if you're thinking how to create change in a big organization.
and that ties into Jeff Bezos thing of the two pizza groups, you know, um, where you don't want any group that you can't feed with uh, uh, with two pizzas. That's the biggest group you should have. Uh, and also another thing that comes in some of Fred Smith's stuff is getting the right people in the room. I've been in so many big companies where, oh, you got all the senior vice presidents in the room. Mm-hmm. But where's, uh, where's the clerk? Where's the cashier? Where's the delivery driver? Because the issue you're talking about, they're a key part of it. And you can have the senior vice president and the delivery driver in the, the room at the same time. When Henry Luce created Fortune Magazine, he took a, a handful of the best writers he knew and editors, and he stuck them in a room, and he said, look, you've got, and I think he may have given them a year or something, but he said, "You, I want you to make the greatest business magazine the earth has ever seen. This was in 1930, 1929 and 30. And he locked them off in a room and said, you know, come out when you've got it done, and, and they did. So on the on the people point, I think, Chad, you and I have seen when we've done these rapid prototyping sprints where we bring people together, it's not always the big cheeses that bring the magic in those sessions, is it? No, I, I've always found it to be the people that are closest to the end user or the consumer. They're the ones that have the biggest breakthrough. And that was something very encouraging to me in reading about the early days of, of FedEx in that. Fred Smith was taking calls with and even riding in the trucks and riding in the jump seat with the pilots to understand exactly what was happening on the ground. And I think that was why they were able to make a lot of a lot of their leaps and bounds in the early days that they did. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. When when Adolf Zucker uh, uh, was at the very early stages of creating the movie industry, he would sit in the uh, theaters. Uh, he had owned Nickelodeons and moved up to bigger theaters. And he'd sit there. He didn't watch the film. He watched the audience, and he watched their reaction. He'd find a good place where he could watch everybody from. And he learned what made for a great movie, and mm. and nobody else in the industry got it. He was the mm. only guy that got it. And and the other thing I'd say, too, is talking to customers at, at Hoover's, even after I was no longer in charge there our ceo every friday he would uh, personally call up like a dozen customers and the salespeople would give him a list all the way from a, a small back then it was a hundred dollars a year for the lowest subscription up to the people paying a hundred thousand a year and they'd always have to give him one small one medium one large you know um and, and another thing I really believe in is the customer council at, uh, at Hoover's also. When we were a book publisher, we sold books to li- reference books to libraries. Uh, every year at the Booksellers Convention, we would have uh, one or two pieces, whatever it took. And we had, um, I think uh, she was the uh, head of the Queens Public Library in New York City. We had a university librarian. We had a big corporate librarian. We had maybe six librarians. And every year we would sit down with them and say, well, what would you do different in our books? And we made sure every year when we went back, uh, we had done at least one of the 30 or 40 ideas they would give us so they wouldn't feel like we were ignoring them. Yeah. But truly talking to your customers, listening to your customers and doing it on their grounds. You know, you don't mm. like when you deal with the banks and laws, law firms and accounting firms, they, they take you to their dining room and try to impress you. No, I want them to come out and see my facility and what I'm doing. Mm. Yeah, that's. I think that's really true. So, getting the right people in the room that that have you know that that close contact with customers, they're at the coal face, and also creating a, a a safe area for experimentation. I think I think that's the real takeouts uh, from how FedEx has done it. We've got a, now an interesting bridge to our previous episode. Chad, do you want to want to set up this next clip? 
Yeah, I I think what's fascinating in this talk between the governor and Fred Smith is just the economic impact that a company like FedEx not only has kind of in the local markets, but just the the amount of business that they facilitate across the globe um, and just moving things around uh, in the way that they do. And he has some interesting thoughts about, you know, uh, other retailers like Walmart and specifically Amazon. So so here he is kind of giving his thoughts on uh, some big retailers that are using uh, logistics companies like FedEx. So Walmart was built around a very innovative logistics system that was almost the antithesis of what Sears and Kmart had done. And what Amazon recognized was the profundity of mobile devices where you could see products displayed, and then they took advantage of of that to use direct shipping to, to come at things from a different channel. So their logistics footprint is unique to Amazon, but it's really an adjunct of the retailing, not an adjunct, not the other way around. Hmm. So if you look at FedEx's business, the vast majority of our business is not e-commerce. 85% plus is business to business. It's defibrillators, it's airplane parts, it's auto parts, it's uh, diagnostic kits, it's the replenishments for uh, uh, various uh, companies and and retail supplies and so forth. We do a lot of e-commerce, but it's still only about 12% of the retail landscape. So for me, what jumps out about that is if you actually listen to our last show and uh, with Jeff and this show with Fred from FedEx, they both acknowledge the same principle, which is FedEx is in the shipping business and Amazon is in the retail business. Jeff clearly says we'll augment services from FedEx. And in particular, I think he mentioned the poor old British Postal Service, which has let them down. I was actually living in the UK at the time when that happened. There's this scandalous thing where lots of little Christmas presents for kids didn't actually get uh, to the homes on time because the, the post just basically broke. Interestingly, he points out uh, where they do most of their business And what it shows me is that in this case, both uh, entrepreneurs know what business they're in. And I think this is the big learning in this. Know what business you're in because making a big investment in in shipping um, when that's not your core business could be a fatal mistake. Peter Drucker uh, referred to the concept of the corporation. That was uh, his first major book. And uh, I still think he's the, the greatest management thinker we've ever had, certainly among ones who wasn't a manager himself. And um, that each leader uh, organization really has a concept of what it is. And I think people underestimate the uh, importance and power of, of that idea. Yeah. Um, so, Gary, big question. Can you think of companies that uh, got confused about um, what business they were in and have made mistakes? In you know, Fred is so clear what business he's in. He's not worried at all about Amazon. Some speculate in the press. Well, Amazon's got forty jumbos. How how much trouble is FedEx really in? And he seems pretty clear in it. Are there examples of other companies that are either very clear or perhaps not as clear and have made some pretty bad mistakes? Well, certainly through history, uh, it could be the majority of the Fortune 500 
qualify as getting confused at one time or another. <laughs> they, uh, you know, uh, and, and it's a difficult thing because you, I got to believe in experimentation and trying things, but uh, you guys are probably a little too young, but in the 1970s, we call it the conglomerate era. And that was when Harold Janine of ITT bought up Hartford Insurance and Sheraton Hotels and everything else he could get his hands on. Charlie Bluthorn over at Golf and Western bought Paramount Pictures and uh, Jimmy Ling out of uh, Texas bought... Um, uh, started with LTV uh, Aerospace Company, and then he got into carpets and Braniff Airlines, and the whole thing was, oh, we can run any business. And a more recent case was Jack Welch at, at General Electric, where he took what was yes. a great technology company, although dated technology in many cases, but still it was a tech company, and converted it into a conglomerate where financial services became the almost the tail that wagged the dog. And then when the you-know-what hit the fan in 2008 yeah. and everything, and they realized, oh, we shouldn't be in these businesses we don't understand them and then ML his successor had to you know shed the financial stuff and split it off um, that's that's so right. no it's it's more the common than the exception that uh, big companies get to a point and and many times they just don't see the opportunities in their own field if you study Kmart they reached and and they were a one wonderful hot company I was a stock analyst on Wall Street covering retailing in the 70s and they were the hottest thing we'd ever seen they were growing like mad they were incredibly profitable they dominated the discount store industry in America and then uh, they they matured uh, they didn't invest in new um, cash registers technology and stuff and then they said, oh, I, they must have said to themselves, oh, this isn't sexy for Wall Street. So they bought Borders bookstores and they bought a home improvement store chain. They bought a sporting goods chain. They bought a couple of others. They went into specialty retailing. Well, they, their management, their board had to have been saying to themselves, well, we've done everything that can be in discount retailing. There's not a big growth future in it. And at that point, Walmart was a fraction of their size. Um, mm. uh, we didn't even look at Walmart. You know, they they were only a, a 10-year-old. Well, the companies were the same age, but Walmart was a tiny size share of uh, of, um, of, of Sears or uh, Kmart. They were, what do I figure, something like when I looked at them in 1973, they were one, one 150th of the revenue of Kmart and Sears combined. Today, I think Walmart is something like 18 times as big right. as Sears and Kmart combined. So really over and over, people are always, the grass is greener on the other side. Managements get bored. They, oh, I've been doing this all this time. I got to do, and, and you say all this time, a transformative transaction. I'm going to mm. buy this company. You know, I'm going to do mm. this big deal. I'll be on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. They may not say that to themselves, but that's obviously what's going on. Their egos get ahead of, um, sure. you know, sure. rash of, and, and they, and they, they've stopped believing in their own business. Uh, Fred Smith still believes that there's a, future in logistics you know he does uh, he jeff does. bezos believes there's a future in retailing yeah well, I, I just i love the confidence of fred smith and in, in thinking that well this business business logistics business is big enough for us to continue to grow this company you know forever into the future and he's not letting himself get distracted by how can we deliver you know fidget spinners to to people you know we're in the business of of delivering you know, mission critical, big iron types of things to to business customers that will always pay a high premium for that next day service. Yeah, and I I, I think where 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 you see again the similarity between Bezos and Smith, obviously different generations, different businesses, but the proximity they have to their customers 
helps them stay on track. And I think this certainty, it, you can feel it when they're talking, the clarity by which they see the situation. And I think that they are also close enough to their customers um, that they they appreciate the business that they're in. I think Blockbuster was an example of a company that got uh, disconnected from the fact that, that they were really delivering a vehicle of entertainment and they thought they were running physical DVD stores. And I think that was their mistake. You could, you could look at um, many other companies in history. I think Kodak is another one who literally invented the digital camera, but they thought they were in the film business, not the capturing memories business. And this, this, uh, uh, this view of keeping close to your customers so you can actually stay very, very focused on your core business. Gary, you, know, you, you work with a lot of entrepreneurs. How do you keep them uh, focused on the business that they're in? Well, I mean, I, I think just the things that, that you and we've been saying, uh, you know, talk to a lot of customers and everything. But but I will step back a bit on the, the whole thing of, you know, what industry are you in? There was a very famous um, article written, I think, Harvard Business Review, probably a long time ago called Marketing Myopia. And it was saying, well, the railroads didn't realize they were in the transportation business. They thought they were in the railroad business. That's really easy to say when you're not running a company. If you take Blockbuster, so I met the founder of Blockbusters. He was mm. thinking about opening the first store. He came to my, we had a grand opening of our bookstore in Dallas. And he came to learn, because I had written my own inventory control system uh, in a language called DBase2, an early relational database for microcomputers. And because there was nothing available off the shelf that would meet the need. I knew we had to have to run a giant bookstore with a lot of titles and he came to learn from it but when you look at their decline because I tracked them pretty closely over the years and they changed hands several times and a lot of issues Wayne Hazinga the great entrepreneur got involved but when I came to that point with Netflix coming up you know they, they had, you can't get out of a lease the lease is the one thing when you have a retail store you can adjust payroll you can adjust advertising you can adjust inventory you can adjust everything but your leases only in bankruptcy can you get out of and so you're sitting there with 10-year leases on hundreds of thousands or even millions of square feet of space so in many ways and and kodak which i've been studying intensely uh for a long time but recently mm. i've been reading a lot i'm going to do in uh one of my newsletters on george eastman um they really were a chemical company and if you look at it even though the old eastman kodak is essentially gone the British Employees Pension Fund now owns the rights to the film business. Um, they, they were a chemical company, and Eastman Chemical is still a giant chemical company that came out of the side of them. And so even though they invented the digital camera, uh, I'm not saying they didn't make a lot of mistakes, and I'm not saying if I ran it, I would have done it differently. Mm. But, man, it's it's very tricky. Uh, and the airlines did, I mean, the railroads did, in fact, Pennsylvania Railroad helped found TWA, one of the first big U.S. airlines. And uh, they actually were playing around with aviation. So how you define it, how, how you understand also change, because the railroads, the market changed. Well, the federal government, the U.S. built highways uh, at no cost to the truckers and, and the relatively little cost. And the railroads had to build all their own stuff and their own stations and everything. The U.S. government built the airports and created the air traffic control system uh, on the taxpayers, nickel, whereas the railroads had to build all that themselves. Um, and, uh, you know, I, th I think it's a tough thing, uh, uh, but, uh, but clearly retailing is going to be around in one form or another forever. Logistics is going to be around in one form or another forever. And, um, 
You know, the, the one thing I would add too, just in all the things we've said, is that although rarely comes up, uh, FedEx is made strong by having a strong competitor. And I see this in tech companies all the time where they poo poo their competitors and everything. And I'm sure inside FedEx they say bad things about UPS. Mm. But I, I wrote a guest editorial for the Austin Business Journal a few years ago where I made the case that UPS was the greatest single American company today. Uh, it is the most valuable transportation company in the world. It's the only one that's worth even more than Federal Express. It is a machine. It, nobody can name Mr. Casey, the founder. Nobody can name a, a visible CEO. It's bigger than FedEx, more valuable than FedEx. And having somebody like that out there, because it is an awesome company, uh, that just makes both those companies better. And I think a lot of people um, underestimate the, the power of having somebody that good as your arch rival. Well, I would say that what's interesting when you draw the analogy between FedEx and Amazon, the other thing that has just struck me as you were talking is that the founder is still leading the company. And it seems that that, that that is also the people that have the original insight, the original aha, um, actually have some inner stamina, if you will, just to, to keep the company on track. And in fact, our last clip that uh, we'll do later on will actually tell our listeners how uh, how that all started for, for Fred Smith, how he actually knew there was such a big opportunity with, with FedEx. So stay tuned for that. Okay, so now we're going to move to to our third clip, completely different uh, attacked for a moment. Fred has actually, you know, achieved a lot of things in his professional career, but he's also overcome a lot of challenges, his health as a kid. But the other thing uh, that uh, he was able to do was uh, he made it to the Marines and he actually served in, in, uh, in Vietnam. And um, truly remarkable when you think about all the things he's achieved in his life. And so obviously, you know, the governor is asking um, Fred, you know, what did you learn uh, from your time in the Marines, and I think he had uh, a great response. So let's have a listen to what Fred learned from his time in the Marines. So it was hugely important because the Marine Corps tells you how to how you how you go about motivating people to withdraw that discretionary effort up to and including risking their lives, and that's a big part of military leadership. So I, I, a lot of things I did in the Marine Corps, obviously I'd, I'd just soon not remember, but because that was a tough way to make a living in those days, as Clint will tell you. But the principles I learned in the Marine Corps about leadership and management, that's a different matter. And I've always valued those greatly. So there he is. He, he actually, for all of the organizational things, um, that you think he could have lifted from the U.S. Army, how they move, you know, uh, troops and machinery and resources all around the world. He actually went for motivating others, and what I loved in that was the the reference to discretionary effort. And he he doesn't put it at like, hey, we need you to come work on the on, on your Saturday or stay back late tonight. Uh, he, he's like, it's the biggest, uh, the biggest effort of all, you know, people putting uh, their lives on the line and, and motivating others. So you can only imagine the scale of that challenge when you have 500 employees. 
I, I wonder, Gary, what, what do you see in companies in, in those that do a good job of motivating their people? I mean, Chad talked about, you know, FedEx employees, you know, bleed purple. What do FedEx and others do to actually make that happen? Well, some of the things, uh, certainly in larger companies, is a lot of the best ones, you know, have their management or leadership institutes. General Electric's actually is one of the most famous ones up at Crotonville on the Hudson, I think it's called. And, uh, you know, Hamburger U, Ray Kroc's deal uh, the, to run their people through. Even a bookstop when we were uh, only doing about $70 million a year, we had started our own training system. I mean, it's very expensive. And to take people off the floor and out of their stores and take a week or two weeks here, con the Container Store, one of America's great specialty retailers, they've had kind of a rough spot recently, but uh, they, they're famous for their average employee had like a month, a year of training. So that's part of the one thing I'd say, too, you know, we, we can't all join the Marines and learn that way. But I can tell you, I, I learned so much from having some great bosses and I had some bad ones, too. And uh, about half what I learned was, wow, I'll never do that, you know. But uh, and, and that's when I mentor a lot of young people that are maybe want to become an entrepreneur, but not sure the right path and haven't launched anything yet and urge them to be patient. But I also think that's that's one one of the arguments for no go work for a big company, find the best company you can and work for them for a few years and learn about management. I mean, it, it can be incredibly valuable, too, because later when you do your startup, you're either competing with those big companies or buying from them or selling to them. And the more you understand about how big companies think and how organizations work, uh, those are pluses, too. A again, I've had other friends. My One of my best friends is 26, and he dropped out of college, and he's starting companies, and he's not going to have any of that kind of corporate experience. I've at times tried to talk to him, and they'll well, take six months or a year or something and you know, mm. two years and, and try it out. But so there, there are a million, there's many paths to successes. There are individuals, mm. uh, but, but that is an, uh, uh, one of the reasons that I think it, it often is beneficial to, uh, you know, find, Hey, look at the fortune list of the hundred best companies to work for. That's a, can't beat that for a place to start in thinking yes. about well, which company in this industry, the industry I want to learn, because, you know, we study all these greats and they really are committed to one industry. Mm -hmm. I'm a serial entrepreneur. I've been in different industries, but never at the same time, always sequentially. But in my heart, I will always be a merchant and a retailer. And uh, that is my most beloved industry. And most of the greats um, spend their life building one company in one industry. Mm. I, I think the theme that I see with Fred is he obviously has created a culture within the organization where they are, uh, from at least from the outside, they seem very attentive to the growth and development of their own staff, um, not only with the university, uh, but he was even talking about writing the manual. That, that management get given, he is personally writing it. So that instantly tells you how important it, it is. I would say what characterizes great cultures that I've either been part of or I've seen from the outside is this genuine attention to the well-being of your staff beyond that of delivering profits for the company. And the great twist to that is that the more effort um, that they put into the development of their staff, the more money they end up making. It's just not putting them in the, those priorities in the wrong order. And that that's certainly something I've seen. So question for you, Chad, 
when you've witnessed highly motivated teams and organizations, what are the lessons you you learn from them and what do you see that's sort of the driving force of a highly motivated team? I, I think Fred, the history of Fred having the army or the Marines as an example for him, you know, that was his example of leadership and how to get people to do things, in this case, risk their lives, you know, to accomplish their missions. But I think at the core too, it's ensuring the success of everyone else, you know, having each other's backs and you do well and you survive by making sure that everyone else survives, you know, so it's kind of a a military selflessness, if you will. And I found that in the highest performing teams, that is also very prevalent. You know, it's, it's not about Mm -hmm. one person succeeding or outshining everyone else, but if the, if the team can figure out how to kind of put themselves aside a little bit and just really focus on the task at hand and being sure that they're setting each other up for success, then that's, that's when I think teams can really become high performing. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I see that theme to my childhood sporting teams, to the companies that I'm involved with. I see that pattern arising. Uh, the one interesting thing in the mention of the Marines is is it does, uh, this is a very handy tool for our listeners. Um, there is a, a book that personally I really enjoyed by a guy called Simon Sinek, who we've mentioned on the show before. And it wasn't the Start With Why book, but it was the Great Leaders Eat Last. Now, have, have either of you, Gary or Chad, have either of you read this one? I haven't, but I know his stuff is uh, pretty cool, yeah. the why and everything. I, I yeah, have, yeah. and he has a great TED Talk um, we'll put in the show notes uh, where he explains kind of his main thesis for, for Great Leaders Eat Last. So one thing the, I, I'd add, too. Sorry, one thing, Gary. I just sure. wanted to, to, to build this bridge is the idea of that book is taken from the Marines, the same thing that Fred's mentioning. And really? um, cool. the reference point, check this out, the reference point is that apparently when the Marines go to the mess hall, the youngest, most junior lieutenants always get to eat first. And the most senior commanders and captains, they eat last. And he, he builds this story that why they are also motivated in the Marines is one of the m- biggest contributing factors is that young uh, lieutenants know that there is an entire infrastructure and group of people who put them first. And this sets the tone for the culture, the mission, and how they go about getting the job done, which, which is remarkable. So... Great Leaders Eat Last is the book. We'll put the a link to that in the show notes and in the TED note, uh, in the the TED talk as well. But let's let's flick it over to Gary because you were going to build on that. Oh uh, yeah, this is just kind of tangentially related, but you can find online. Fred Smith was at some sort of uh, conference or meeting about George Catlett Marshall, the great general, and uh, Winston Churchill said that George Marshall was the greatest individual he ever met in his life. And Fred was talking about how uh, Marshall, when he was in charge of World War II and everything, that he promoted a bunch of very young officers over the heads of much more senior ones. And I'm pretty sure Eisenhower was one of those who was leapfrogged. And Marshall was always looking for who are the really bright young people in this organization? Who are the future of it? When I worked for the great federated department stores in their glory days in the 70s, it's now been renamed Macy's and doesn't have quite the energy it had then. Uh, but 
But I remember a friend of mine, she was assistant manager at one of our stores, and a company probably had 400 stores and 50,000 employees, I don't know, a big company, Bloomingdale's and all that jazz. And um, they flew her up to Cincinnati, the headquarters, one time, and much to her surprise, they took her to, uh, I think it was a room, and on in that room were pictures of, I forget, 50 or 70 people, and hers was one of them. And it was the very top management at the corporate headquarters that was keeping track of these people, five, six, seven levels down in management that they thought were stars and and that they would reach for if some competitor tried to hire them away and that they were going to go out of their way to develop them. And that's something that, man, you don't see that in a lot of companies where they really are, are listening to. Uh, I had some of the issues like that in my own companies. I said, why are you fighting so hard to keep that person from leaving the company? They're just a clerk. And, I, and we can hire more clerks. And I said, no, we can't hire somebody like her. You know, I mean, don't let her go because she's going to be a store manager and then a regional manager and a vice president and maybe run the company someday. And you can see it in their eyes. Yeah. Yeah. I find in my own personal experience, like the, the, the best thing that I can do to motivate others around me is, is really, I, I just put on um, like the mentor hat. Uh, the the coaching uh, uh, hat. So I try to be as, you know, if you will, open source with everything that I know and to to try and teach and share and inspire people with uh, innovation, which is exactly why, you know, I do the podcast as well. And it's interesting, I had an experience recently where I sat down with the entire um, uh, new business and uh, project management team from from my firm at Qualitons. So it's a big group of people. It's a large company. There's over 200 people in the company. And I, and I s- sat there with two of the big teams and took them through a really rigorous, fun, uh, deep dive for three hours on innovation. And they were as engaged as any engineer or designer uh, has been in the same things. And I think that they just didn't um, uh, usually in their in their careers have people come and, and share what they know and their passion for something. And I found the, the response there was really uh, not only motivating for them, but for me because, and, and all I did is simply sit them down and just take them through exciting ideas and in, in innovation. And they loved it. And I think it's this investing in others, putting them uh, before you. I think that's the big learning here uh, that we're getting from Fred. This is how you motivate others. I think this is the, the thing that, uh, that our listeners can take out of this. You can find a book. It's called Servant Leadership. I forget the author's name right now, but there's a whole there's a literature out there about, um, yeah, great, great leaders are, are servants. Yeah. Okay, well, we'll find a, a link to servant leadership, and we'll put that into into the notes as well. So that gets us to the halfway point. I I think just to to recap, it seems like change is a constant, um, and being fearless in the pursuit of innovation, uh, ring fencing it, um, you know, as Fred said, investing in it, promoting in it. Um, and really listening to the ideas that people have, that was a big learning. I think staying very close to your core business and, and being using the customer as an agent, not only for innovation, but also for keeping, keeping on track. That was definitely a big theme. And, and obviously, putting others before yourself in terms of motivation. So 
lots of goodies, uh, a huge spectrum uh, of inspiration from Fred there. We've got a couple more clips coming up. Um, again, some classic Fred uh, uh, philosophy coming. But before we do that, let's let's jump uh, over to Chad and hear Chad's uh, famous book recommendation. Yeah, so I've had a lot of fun digging into all of these innovators and the history of uh, of the businesses they've started. And I looked for something a little different this time. The book I found was called Changing How the World Does Business, FedEx's Incredible Journey to Success, The Inside Story. And it's written by a man, Roger Frock, who was there from the very beginning. He was a consultant that Fred Smith hired before he incorporated Federal Express, uh, essentially to come up with the plan on how, essentially to help him write the business plan. So Roger was kind of tasked at figuring out the operational side of things and how many planes and where we should, you know, put our hub and what cities we should open in first. And then he had a, a different firm kind of do the marketing and kind of customer research side of the business plan. And then those three teams, uh, Fred and then the two consultant teams came together to found the company. And uh, this book spends a lot of time, you know, in the first two or three years of the company, just because that's when Roger kind of had most access to Fred and was general manager of the company, kind of like Fred's uh, second in command. And for me, it was an interesting kind of half personal memoir, half, you know, saga in, in kind of inside baseball. And it's a really quick read. It's just about 200 pages. And I'd recommend anyone that, that's interested in, you know, how a company kind of survives the internal politics, because it really gets into why why Fred hired the people that he did, you know, fellow Marines and, and Air Force uh, commanders, and also how he kind of fended off, you know, aggressive financiers and and ultimately kind of prevailed after, I think it was about three and a half or four years before they reached um, profitability, but it was a very long slog. So I would recommend changing how the world does business to anyone interested in, in the early days of FedEx and kind of the personal uh, interpersonal intrigue that goes with starting a very capital-intensive company that had to raise a lot of money from very onerous members of Wall Street. Mm. And you Who would tried imagine- to oust him, try to get rid of him too. Well, did they really? They so they yeah. hired they hired uh, uh, the youngest Air Force four-star general. The board is, yeah. essentially made him take a leave of absence for a couple of weeks. He came back. They had hired. Uh, this new guy that completely disrupted the culture. He he wanted his own parking spot and <laughs> he wanted the corner office with the wood paneling. He essentially took Fred's you know office in the new office building. And it, what ended up happening is Fred still ran the company, uh, you know, in spite of this, this person that the board had installed and he didn't last, you know, I think he lasted about 18 months and then he, <laughs> he was out and, Fre- and Fred was back in. But Fred had also, he was going to tender his resignation because, you know, they weren't going to be able to, to reach profitability. You know, they were going to have to default on some of their loans. But Roger, the, the author of this book and several of the other top managers convinced him before, essentially the day before he went, you know, before the board of directors that, you know, the company could not survive without him because he was so integral to, to the day-to-day operations and the, just the success of the company. So. Um, Again, as you can tell, there, there's just a ton of very interesting and fascinating stories, um, you know, about 
about how businesses get get built and kind of survive all of these these tough challenges. A great uh, Herb Kelhurst uh, answer. Uh, he was asked at a, a conference I was at, uh, "What happens if after you retire, the board appoints somebody who doesn't share your values and doesn't get the Southwest Airlines concept?" And he said, "The employees would drive them out within a year." Hmm. Yeah, and that's exactly what happened at FedEx. And I, I, I really, it it really speaks to not only the leadership ability of Fred Smith, but just his character. Um, and I'm not going to say like, you know, he, he's um, without fault because I think um, as the company grew, you know, from just himself and th- three employees at first to now the 500,000, you know, he's had to, you know, depersonalize some of his relationships. You know, he's had to, he's had to be the, the more stern Marine commander type um, mm. with, with some people and, and not, you know, their friends or buddies, because I think that was the biggest insight for me, like with the management team, you know, they realized, oh, Fred's no longer our friend. Like, you know, like now we have a real business and real revenues and, and now we're taking care of a hundred thousand people or 250,000 people, not just our, our, our little circle. So imagine how close you get with someone that you work with for 10, 20, 30, or in his case, 46 years Talk about the lines blurring between are we co-workers or friends? I mean, and the enormous amount of time and you know their families and, and, and so forth. But the other thing that this makes me think about is how on earth does Fred see the difference between Fred and FedEx? Because your life would be so intertwined, your identity, your day is spent in the same thing for 46 years. Uh, what a feat to have some objectivity at all at the end of that. For what it's worth, Alfred P. Sloan, the, I believe the greatest manager who ever lived, the man who built General Motors, uh, he was asked once if he'd seen um, the man who um, made him the head of General Motors, Pierre S. DuPont, another brilliant man, and he was the venture capitalist really behind uh, General Motors financing. And he's the one that picked Sloan, who was a younger guy in the organization. He said, this company's a mess. Drop a plan for where we go in the future. And he saw Sloan's plan. He made him the head. And he built it into the greatest company in the world. Um, but uh, they asked him, uh, well, what did you think of DuPont's gardens, which are now a big public uh, a botanical garden outside of Philadelphia or Wilmington mm-hmm. in that area? And he said, well, I never saw him. And he made a point to never become friends with anyone he worked with. And when they went to appoint his successor, he refused to participate. He said, that's up to the board. I'm staying out of it. There's a very interesting, uh, sounds cold. Uh, and, and, and I've got to say, um, the real test of what Fred Smith's done will be when he does step down. Because yeah. uh, it's hard enough when you have the same leader for 10 or 20 years. Look at Steve Jobs and everything mm. with his limited number of years. When you got 46 years, and I, I have a list of, I think, about 40 books that I think are the most important books that haven't been written yet, that need to be written. Some mm. of them maybe I'll write someday. But one of those is why do great leaders pick loser successors? When you study the history of business over and yeah. over, you have the most amazing people. I mean, uh, hey, uh, uh, I hate to be rude, but, but look at um, Gates and Balmer. And they were yeah. buddies. I heard Balmer speak. I thought he was brilliant when he was the number two guy. 
Uh, and then, you know, that company just flatlined under his leadership. Oh, my gosh. Think about all the terrible acquisitions he did. I mean, talk about blowing the cash. Bulma, really. And then it, to see, I think where you see the starkness is uh, under new leadership, how improved Microsoft really has become the last few years. And it has, yeah. still has a lot of cash and has enormous potential. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, no, and, but over and over you see the, the next, and you know, um, the, the next leader of Federal Express will be somebody who wasn't there at the revolution. You know, if you study the history of political revolutions, there's a gang that was there at the revolution and that, you know, blood, sweat, and tears. And then you've got their successors and they weren't there. And sometimes there's a transition period where one of the lieutenants takes over. And so they have some of that, but then soon enough you get people that, that didn't mm-hmm. didn't go through all that early stage agony, and uh, it's very very difficult. I'm I'm extremely I was on the Whole Foods Market Board of Directors, so it's going to be very interesting as um, you know uh, power shifts and things mm-hmm. change. Mm-hmm. Can they maintain the the trem- uh, really incredible spirit and attitude? You talk about a company that's very employee oriented and. A wonderful mm. company to work for, but you know how will that evolve under what's perceived as a much tougher kind of environment at Amazon? I think you're absolutely right. Calling out the the culture thing there—that's probably the one thing uh, where I think the companies are furthest apart. On, I think the interesting thing to come back to your um, question mark around succession. I felt that that was a big theme of the book Good to Great, which is one of the all-time classics um, by an author called Jim Collins. And he pointed out that companies that get better when the founder uh, relinquishes the role and hands it over to a successor was actually one of the criterias, if I remember it correctly, that he had for that book, meaning that he judged a great company uh, was often founded by a fabulous uh, founder, and that man or woman would do a great job, you know, breaking the ice. But great companies actually got better when the transition to a new leadership uh, was a, a net positive. And to to your point, Gary, like so many times, this has uh, been a, a an absolute mess, um, and you see you see companies just totally losing. Trajectory. I think Microsoft's one of the biggest cases of that in recent history, but looks like it's back on back on track. It's it's very parallel when you study the great family enterprises. You know, sometimes the kids are just idiots and just <laughs> idiots. You know, and then other times, like IBM Watson Jr., who everybody thought was a playboy and would really screw up Dad's business, uh, turned out to be every bit as smart as the old man and yeah. uh, took the company to a higher level. So, and the one thing I'd say too, you mentioned Jim Collins, and I'm a, a fan of his. And um, Built to Last and Good to Great are very much worth reading. Mm. Uh, but it also he's a classic case of showing how how hard it is to predict the future of an organization because you can go to my hooversworld.com and see one of my newsletter articles where I pull apart what he considered these companies were built to last. He studied, I think, 20 or 30 companies and in each industry he did a comparison of, okay, here was the great one built to last, here's the one that wasn't. Well, I did an analysis and uh, actually the ones he didn't like 
uh, outperformed the companies he did like by quite a margin over the following 10 or 20 years. <laughs> and some of the companies he thought were great uh, went bankrupt. Uh, and so it's just very difficult to predict what's going to happen around that next corner, especially with a change in leadership. Yeah. And that's and that to me is, is the fun of it, uh, the way things can change. And uh, it seems like Fred is totally alive. Uh, he's excited by the idea that things can change and that uh, he seems very energized by that, which, which is where a lot of their innovation comes from. I want to set up the next clip because another place I think is the source of his inspiration and the thinking that he does, and he cannot be underestimated as a great thinker, really comes from their practice of uh, learning. And so here's him talking about how he thinks about learning and being a student of history. So you have to, if you want to play at a high level, whether it's politics or medicine or uh, sports, uh, uh, or business, you have to absorb the lessons of history or you're going to make a terrible mistake that has already been made before because there have been a lot of things done in human history that, <laughs> that are there for the, for the asking in terms of, of reading about them. Okay, so it, what we can see here is that despite 46 years in one of the biggest companies in America that employs 500,000 people, Fred is an advocate uh, of always learning and being a student of history. I think throughout the interview, he references um, so many great commanders, uh, people who've helped uh, write government acts, Marcus Aurelius from the Roman Empire. He can call upon wisdom and the wisdom of history uh, from all different facets. And I think this is what makes his, his worldview so enormous. He, not only can he reference history, um, the, the, the governor asked him, hey, what's going on on the economy? And it was like listening to Robert Schiller or some great economist. He could literally just bing, bing, bing around the world, call off some numbers and some facts. And he even can riff about, you know, some of the, the things that the American government do can, can do to improve the economy. And I, this all comes from, from his learning. And I, I'm very interested to ask you, Gary, I mean, if I remember your new book is all about learning and how to do it. You must have loved this to hear that, that Fred is such a student of history. Uh, yeah, that's an understatement. And I will also tell you, Herb Kelleher, who I, who I got to know a bit, uh, he really reads and loves his history. And and that's, I, I've made the statement, it cost uh, our business society billions of dollars, pr probably a trillion dollars, our total lack of understanding of business history. Um, I've met people at General Motors that have never even heard of Alfred Sloan, including executives. Oh, it's just awful out there how little we know in the business world about history. And yet, when you study the great leaders, and it, it's uh, and, and Winston Churchill said, you know, you've got to um, study history. Steve Jobs said you cannot forecast the future looking forward. You have to look to the past to connect the dots. Um, it's uh, so important. And uh, no, he's he's right on, and and obviously he mm. views that as a key part of his success. 
So I'm interested to know, uh, Chad, how do you incorporate learning into the storytelling that you do? And for our listeners uh, who are tuning in for the first time, Chad is a, a great storyteller, all things uh, around innovators, entrepreneurs, people looking to disrupt disrupt the status quo. So I'm interested, Chad, like how do you incorporate learning uh, into your practice? Oh, I I try and watch as much media as possible and, and learn, you know, not only from what the Vimeo and YouTube stars are doing today, but just kind of those classic elements of storytelling, whether that's radio dramas that you were talking about in the pre-show, Mike, and, and, and the War of the Worlds um, radio broadcast. I think for me, there are always going to be those timeless nuggets of wisdom. Um, you just have to do the digging to uncover them, uh, which is why I've enjoyed this process with you so much is that I go and look at the history of a company like FedEx and, and a founder and, and leader like Fred Smith that I really would never have come across beforehand. But now I have such a deeper understanding of how important it is to surround yourself with the right people and how important it is to focus on, you know, the service of your company and how that will ultimately drive profits. Um, so I think for me, and I've actually started essentially any piece of media that I consume, whether that's a book or a YouTube video or a podcast, I will write down kind of the one thing that I need to take away from that. And mm. I just have a catalog mm. of those um, mm. so that I can always kind of go back to uh, and refer to them. And I think it, this goes back to, to Gary, you talking about in just we need to be writing these things down and, and write, putting our business plans and our ideas to paper. I found that that's been a, a very beneficial practice for me in just the past couple of months. If I could throw out a tip for our listeners, um, uh, it's a, uh, the history of American business, which is so um, unknown, really. Uh, most most of the greatest business leaders in American history, uh, most people under 30 have never heard of. Most people under 60 haven't heard of. Uh, so the book to start with is called The Visible Hand by Alfred Chandler. And that's the single best book on the history of American business and how it all came about. Just an amazing book. And then another one by Harold Evans called They Made America, which is uh, brief stories of a lot of our greatest innovators, but a big chunk of them people have never heard of. He picked a very diverse group from cosmetics to technology and a lot of great unsung heroes of mine. Those two books are the best place to start to begin to have some sense of the big picture because we, we have such a, I call it uh, chronocentricity. We believe our own time is unlike any other time, that the rate of change is faster than it's ever been, that everything is unprecedented, and that the uh, the past doesn't matter. And man, that's, I'm with Fred Smith. That is, that just cost our society billions of dollars. Gary, can you just give us those two books uh, again so our listeners can, can grab them? Uh, up, yeah, The Visible Hand by Alfred Chandler. And he wrote several other great books. One is called Scale and Scope, in which he looks at European companies after he had written The Visible Hand. The Visible Hand is the story of American business. And his book, Inventing the Electronic Century, talks about how the uh, America let uh, 
the consumer electronics business get away from us, how RCA and the kingpins really blew it. So anything by Alfred Chandler, he's he's dead now, but he was the he was a Harvard professor, Johns Hopkins before that. Just uh, he was he's amazing guy. And the other one is called They Made America by Harold Evans, E-V-A-N-S, and um, make sure and get the hardcover copy, not the paperback, because they left all the photographs out of, and the illustrations out of the paperback, and those add so much value to understanding that history if you get the hardcover version. They're both, hey, they're, they're both readily available. The Visible Hand is, uh, one, uh, is, is one of the most important business books ever written and continues to sell well after... 30, 40 years. Mm-hmm. The, um, I'm just thinking about all the, the amazing book suggestions we're giving in, in the show where we're almost becoming the, the innovators book show where we're, 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 this is re- exciting. I think the Kindles and the, and the Amazon orders are going to be going crazy. I want to bring yeah, out. And if I can add, I have to say my book includes my 160 favorite books and many of them are about history and the big picture. Right, so we'll be sure to to put um, uh, a link to your book, and this is the Lifetime Learner's Guide to Reading and Learning. You got it. All right, okay. In the in the show notes, it goes. So, uh, Chad, we got we've got one more clip. Um, feels like every show we we get almost to the end, and it's like we could talk for so much more. Um, but do you want to set up this this last clip, which I think is a really appropriate way to, to wrap up the Fred show? It's a nice uh, practical nugget, if you will, from Fred, really just about keeping your eyes open, being aware, staying close to the customer, and and to not just blindly uh, guess when you're when you're trying to 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 run your business and so here he is with his uh, our final thoughts from fred first thing is you have to be very objective about what you're trying to do and have to have a business concept that has a competitive advantage i mean there's no sense quite frankly in starting a business that 10 other people are doing the same thing because you're going to be able to make a living but that's at best what you're going to be able to do So if it's in real estate, maybe you have the killer location for whatever it is, if you're a restaurant or what have you, but you have to have a point of differentiation and and competitive advantage, and you've got to be damn sure that your innovation or your thought has that competitive advantage and you can sustain it. When I was putting together FedEx, Federal Express in those days, way back when, I had I commissioned, and I didn't really have the money to do it, not one, not two, but three completely separate and independent studies to verify the market that I thought that existed for these high-tech and high-value-added parts and pieces that had no way to be moved uh, at that point. You know, technology was outrunning the logistics system. So I was very sure that the solution that we had was competitively superior. And it was, it just sold like gangbusters. Again, you know, Fred being kind of one of the original, uh, you know, validators, if you will, um, he sought so much information because he knew he was going to have to spend tens of millions of dollars to get his business off the ground. And, you know, the venture capital world was very different in the 70s than it was today. You know, you had uh, I mean, you, you had similar recessions and things like the the oil crisis and whatnot, but um, 
you know, his fundamental value as the the founder and entrepreneur of that company was de-risking it for himself, his employees, and the people that invested. And so he invested all of his time, not only commissioning these studies, but he personally went to Washington for weeks at a time to get the regulations passed that would allow them to, to fly the cargo and eventually fly the larger planes, because otherwise their business would, would cease to exist practically overnight. So what role do you think conducting not conducting not one or two, but three different studies, how do you think that affected him once he knew that there was a big product market fit opportunity for him? How did that affect the way he behaved? I think it gave him the confidence to recruit the the operators that he needed to to run the company and also to entice the investors to give him the money. And he didn't just go into a, a room and collect information and not do anything. Everything that he learned from these studies and everything he learned from from lobbying in, in Washington, he would get on the phone immediately after these meetings and and call back to the home office and and share what he learns because they could make those changes right then and there. So in everything from how the planes were laid out in in the way that they were loaded and unloaded to where they were parked or you know, where they were getting the um the ramps to operate in, mm. in in airports, all of these things he would he would learn and then and then relay immediately back to the home office so that they could implement it in the business right away. Yeah, I can't think of many uh, better pieces of advice uh, that he or we could give to any innovators, entrepreneurs starting than to follow Fred's advice, which is to know the product market fit. And that means really going beyond a guess. And I think I would characterize of the last decade, of all the different startups that I have met, many, the vast majority are guessing the opportunity. They're guessing the market. Few people have ever said to me in recent years, we conducted three deep research initiatives, studies, or even paid for them, furthermore, to know that there's a product market fit. It's often anecdotal, yeah, I did this, saw this opportunity, which may or may not be true, but we're not messing around when we're starting a company. Uh, the stakes are big, and I think he demonstrates some of the rigor uh, that you can actually do before you start anything, and I think you're bang on, Chad. It gives you the confidence. When you see it, when you know the opportunity exists, I think it gives you a a huge amount of confidence and direction, and, and, and I think that that's obviously very infectious to to all the people around you. Um, I want to ask you, Gary, who else strikes you as an innovator or an entrepreneur who, who also showed such a great dedication to knowing and not just guessing an opportunity? Uh, boy, man, that's a, that's a big question. Um, uh, mo most of the great uh, people that I've studied all through history n knew their industry, you know, in one way or another. Even a Michael Dell, who dropped out of college, probably knew as much about PC marketing as IBM did, you know, <laughs> before too long. But uh, Chad sat through some of my uh, long 
classes and and knows. And one thing I harp on over and over is do your homework. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm with you. I think maybe less than twenty percent, and I've I've seen probably ten thousand business plans and pitches. Probably less than. 20% uh, of them really do their homework and know their industry. And no matter how you do it, whether you hire outside studies, my own goal in each of the companies I started was to become the best expert in the industry on that industry before I started. Now, I don't think I ever achieved that, but I came pretty darn close, you know, and, and part of my training working for big retailers is learning how to do analysis of opportunities for those big companies. And so I did all my own uh, research. But hey, between consumer surveys, visiting every competitor all over the United States, um, and, and a lot of little tricks. Like uh, when I first went to the booksellers convention, all the bookstores are there, all the publishers are there. 90% of them have been thinking the same way for 30 years. And I went over and I introduced myself to the editor of uh, Publishers Weekly, which is a main trade magazine, or was, I think still is, for the bookselling business. And I talked to Daisy, the editor, and she and I said, okay, what, who are the 10 most exciting bookstores in the country? Who's doing something innovative? What should I learn? Uh, what do you think? And we ended up for, well, I don't know, I guess the next six or seven years that I was in the business, every year she and I would walk the entire floor, go past all the booths, just she and I, because she was the one person I could talk to, because a good editor of a good trade magazine knows the industry inside out, especially if they've been at it several years. Hmm. And she was the one person I could really talk to about the future and see the bigger picture. You can't. And, and the one thing I'd say, too, because when I preach all this study history, know your context, know what industry and know how it's worked in the past. Don't just discard it or make fun of it, but learn from it learn from the best, even if you're your model is really different. People say, oh, I'm too buried. You know, I'm, I've got nightmares here and my right-hand person just quit and I can't raise money. And I said, look, every business person is buried under the details of the business and the short-term issues. What makes a difference is that person that takes 10% of their time, that takes every Sunday afternoon or takes every, you know, Friday night or whatever, and just three hours a week of, of reading these kind of books or that alone will give you, put you light years ahead of your competition. You just, just like Bill Gates, he used to have his think week and later he upped it to two weeks here where, you know, he'd go off in the woods. That's a friend right. of mine picked the yep. books he would read, and he'd read anthropology and and all this other stuff. He wasn't reading books about how to be a great software company CEO. Yeah. He was reading this incredibly diverse list of books, and he, and he separated himself. You know, he was like no emails and no business communications, and just a week a year. And I'm sure that seemed like a nightmare to a lot of corporate CEOs, but um, it's one fifty second of his life, and. Um, and, and one thing I, I've got to say, an overarching thing from listening to all this stuff with Fred, I listened to that whole interview with the governor of Tennessee, and I listened to several others. There's a good little thing on the Internet about his 10 lessons for success. You know, the one thing that becomes clear is this is this is truly a wise man. This is an exceptionally intelligent individual. At the same time, when I work with all the entrepreneurs, I don't want somebody running around saying, well, you know, I'm I'm not brilliant. I'll never be a Fred Smith. The reality is that there are so many different types of intelligence. I recently met with a senior executive at one of the biggest computer companies, clearly a guy with an incredibly high IQ and, and even higher self-confidence and ego. <laughs> and, you know, at the end of it, we were talking about some whole different subject about the museum business, actually. At, when I got home, I was saying, man, that guy just isn't very smart. 
He just is not very smart. You know, he might have 160 IQ, and he may have been a great success inside of a very confined, structured organization where he gave orders, I think, and they were followed. Um, but as far as his real wisdom of understanding the world at large, uh, he was really short-sighted. Mm. And what you see in a Fred Smith, it's exceptional. And when we find people like that, we should learn everything we can from them. It's true wisdom. I had four of my college teachers win Nobel Prizes after I had them in class. I say, well, they wouldn't have won them without me, but I was cut in class to start little businesses. <laughs> but, that you know, uh, at least one or two of those guys were truly wise. Yeah, and you mm. could tell it. They they had this broader perspective. That's one reason I love Peter Drucker. He's, he's the only guy who understood demography, sociology, anthropology, business, economics, Wall Street, and could knit it all together. And that's what you see in Fred Smith. The more I listen to him, the more I realize, man, he, he is really, uh, he just is a one of a kind. And, and for him to devote yes. his life to this single pursuit is pretty amazing. I'm sure he would have won a Nobel Prize if he'd become a scientist. Yeah. Um, very. But yeah, but, but that shouldn't scare us normal intelligence people <laughs> off. So, so um, let's do, let me ask you a specific follow-up question. Assuming you, you have the appetite and the motivation, and our listeners out there might be starting a new product or a new company and they want to, they want to learn. Okay. And we've talked about some themes of, of writing and reading and so forth. Can you give, uh, have you seen something recently that someone has done to learn and to, to understand, uh, their business that could be a good suggestion, a good practice? Uh, for our listeners con to conduct if they're at the early stages of their product or, or company? Uh, uh, for sure, three things. I, I give a course, uh, like a two or three hour course called How to Become an Expert in Any Company or Industry and, and do it much faster than most people do it. Three key things. One, go to the trade shows and talk it up, man. Hang out at the cocktail parties. Uh, go meet the editors of the magazines and everything. Go to every booth. Go to the ones nobody else is talking to. Just get a feel for it. And you can even at a trade show, you can sense, is this an industry that's caught in the past? Or still just a bunch of bikini-clad models, which is fine, mm -hmm. but, or, or is it a, you know, you can tell from the trade show, is it one that's advanced? Listen to the speakers. Second thing, read the trade press. One of the biggest things in getting your hands around an industry or your head around it is to know the jargon. Every industry's got its own jargon, and it's like a curtain to keep the outsiders out and the insiders in. You've right. got to penetrate that curtain in the fastest way is to read whatever trade magazines there are and you know most of them are online these days and a lot of them are free and easy and i subscribe to probably a dozen free newsletters so i get the daily airline industry report the daily hotel industry the daily restaurant industry the daily retail dive and they're all free you know and then the third thing is trade associations go to the website of the trade associations. some of them are incredibly deep with information often free and those things are all linked together. Sometimes it's the trade association that holds the convention or publishes the magazine. But mm -hmm. there is so much. It's so much easier now than when I was doing it in the 70s and 80s when you'd have to go to a library in Xerox all day yeah. and to go on the Internet and gather. But you also got to go out in the field. you got to go to those trade shows and pick up the phone and call the editor of Electronics Weekly or whatever the thing is. They'll talk to you. Um, and ask them your questions. I mean, the, the 
world is out there just waiting to give us information and help us along. And, and we've just got to, it's like a giant cafeteria. And man, the, the curious, uh, they eat well, they pig out. Mm. I'd like to mm. add a corollary to that too. The absolute favorite activity that you had us do, Gary, in your course was go to a shopping mall and just <laughs> and, and pick a store and just simply observe for, I think it was like an hour. And then we all came yep. back and I was just fascinated at, at how much you can learn just by that observation. And so kind of my fourth addition to the things you can do is go and immerse yourself in that uh, environment of that company. You know, go go to the Apple store and just sit there for an hour and watch how people interact and what they're buying and how, how much they're walking out the door with and how many people are walking out the door with how much product or, you know, how many planes are, are landing and taking off and how many of them are, are commercial passenger flights versus cargo flights. I think that was just one thing that's stuck with me for, for years, Gary. And um, I, I thank you for giving me that, that tool. Well, uh, good. No, that's everybody's favorite class. I've probably run 300 people through that exercise over the years. And uh, no, no, the powers of observation. And to be frank, the and I love gadgets. I'm a gadget collector. I have my iPod and everything. Um, that's That hurts us in a lot of ways. People, Mm. I can't tell you how many young people, they go through life with their eyes and their ears closed. And the other thing that I think is a a high-risk strategy is being dependent upon the opinions of friends. I see all this, well, you know, uh, social media and we all hook up and I find out what movie they liked and I go see that movie. Hey, I've been watching movies since I was a little kid. I don't have a single friend whose advice on movies I trust 100%. If they're really lucky, they might hit 60%. Go out and and discover it for yourselves. And and tying into all that, the one book everybody must read is The Innovator's DNA. Clayton Christensen, a couple other guys. Uh, It is the, the only book I know that really hits it on the head. What are the real roots of breakthrough ideas? It, it's and, and observation is one of the six key concepts in that book. Fantastic. Well, I mean, it is definitely, uh, we have hijacked the concept of a, a book review show for innovators. <laughs> that's, that's for sure, Gary. Um, I, I, re- I think it's been uh, really wonderful to have to have your input um, before we wrap up, though, I think everyone wants to know what was Chad like as a as a student. Was I mean, did he turn up a lot to class or tell us? Oh, uh, everybody comes to all my classes. I didn't take attendance, but uh, yeah, it's addictive, right, Chad? <laughs> it's different, though. You have to admit that it's not like most classes. No, I think I I love I've I've found that the people I enjoy spending the most time with are the curious minded people. And so, Mike, you know, I got to give a big shout out to you, you know, as inspiration for this podcast. And Gary, I'm so glad that we could induct you into the club as the uh, the first guest <laughs> host. Great fun! I enjoyed it. Yeah, and we would we would love to 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 get you back again. So if if you're open to it and you don't get um, sidetracked in the 33 room library <laughs> that you live in, um, we we would love to invite you back to the to the show, Gary. Well, I have plenty of time. Books are best read between midnight and 6 a.m. in my experience. As a kid, I had to use a flashlight under the covers or get in trouble. Now I'm free to do it and not get in trouble. At your leisure. So 
Yeah. Uh, now, and especially on hitting on the history stuff, because people really need to learn that. And I, I'm trying to put more and more of that on Hoover's world and hopefully write some books in the future and uh, make talks. Um, people really need to learn from these greats. And, and the other thing, too, is I really believe the best way to teach entrepreneurship is to study the great uh, people because people love biography you learn that they were human I mean when you mentioned that you know Fred Smith wasn't perfect well he's human so no he's not perfect you know mm. and and we all make mistakes Sam Walton's famous or they ask him why are you so great company well we do all these things right well why how do you do them right because we did them wrong 20 times before we finally figure out how to do them right you know <laughs> and just from reading the stories and what they go through and because I meet people, oh, woe is me, it's the end of the world. And so, oh, you ain't seen nothing yet. One, one of my favorite things to say to a young entrepreneur is, oh, you thought you had a bad day. You don't have any self-confidence. You're going to have a lot worse days ahead of you, you know. Wow, you need yeah. to buck up because, you know, it's, you haven't even started making mistakes yet. You're going to make some doozies. And yeah. it's true. And But when you read the stories of people, and the real individuals and dig deep into the history because uh, we, we don't know how Elon Musk is going to turn out. Pretty clear how Bezos is going to turn out. Uh, poor, uh, um, I want to say Colin Kaepernick, but that's the wrong name. <laughs> the Uber guy, you know. Um, he's human too, I reckon. Um, yeah. You know, it's, uh, hey, the case is still happening and we'll what jobs built, which is Truly, truly unbelievable. In many ways, the most amazing company of our era I've ever studied. But, you know, where is Apple going to be in 20 years? Uh, is it going to be another IBM in the ditch? Is it going to be another Federal Express going on to record sales and earnings? Um, only time and leadership and this heart and soul of those organizations is the only way we'll find out. And that's another great advantage of studying. A, I wrote a thing, the three greatest companies in American history, uh, which were uh, Pennsylvania Railroad, um, General Motors, and IBM, in my not-so-humble opinion. But you can learn a lot more from old dead companies because you can see the full cycle and you can see what killed them. So in Absolutely. many ways, you can learn a lot more from old stuff. I have more books from the 1920s and 30s than you can imagine. And and every page is, is exciting and I learn something from. And you can't learn much from Elon Musk in terms of how do companies end and where do they go wrong, you know? Well, you know, the, it's interesting you say that, Gary, because as I mentioned earlier, I, I think about block Buster and Kodak, yep. Um, yep. who had clear opportunities to be truly great, but declined them uh, quite literally in declining. Uh, Blockbuster had the chance to invest in Netflix. Kodak obviously created the digital camera and then canned it. Um, the the reality is those two things. I think they're a little bit closer than the founding of GM and and IBM. However, uh, there's so much in those. Uh, I mean, maybe the the um, uh, one episode we could do of the show is the failed moonshots and and deliberately go to some of the biggest the biggest whoppers around. Yeah, I love that um, idea. Yeah, we could definitely do do that. And um, what's great is that you know often uh, people will, in the end, human nature is to tell the truth. People will come out with the true reasons for why things didn't work. And I think there's as much in that as the the successes. Well, Gary, thank you. Thank you once again. Uh, it's been uh, just so, so much information. I can't believe that 
Uh, we've run probably close to two hours. Chad, you're the official timekeeper. Uh, where have we run to? Yeah, we're at uh, right about two hours. But I just I want to thank all the listeners of the show. We love getting your feedback, and you know we wouldn't be doing this if it if it weren't for all of you. So please go to moonshots.io. Uh, you'll be able to find all the show notes. I don't know, the dozen or so book recommendations from today's show, um, as well as a link to uh, the interview with uh, the governor and, and Fred Smith. And, um, you know, let us know what you think uh, about this show with a, with a guest host. And if you have an idea of someone you'd like to see us profile, go ahead and, and give us that feedback. And before we let you go, Gary, I'd just like you to let us know, you know, how, how we can find you, you know, where, where are you on the internet and, um, and, and and I'll give you this opportunity to uh, tell us about your book again. Oh, okay, great. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on here. It's been a great uh, joy, and uh, and I've learned a lot. And uh, uh, celebrating Fred Smith and Federal Express is a, is a worthwhile thing to do. Uh, let's see. Anybody can always email me at g a r y h o o v at m s n dot com, an old school email address, but I refuse yeah. to uh, <laughs> uh, annoy my friends by changing it. Um, and uh, and uh, my website is hooversworld.com, all one word, hooversworld.com. And it's got all my newsletters on there. I also publish them on LinkedIn Pulse. Uh, the new book is called The Lifelong Learner's Guide to uh, Reading and Learning. And it's on Amazon as a um, print book and as a Kindle book. I think they're running a special now for the Kindle Prime subscribers, whatever. Uh, and I've got a book on Amazon too that's uh, just as a um, uh, uh, ebook, and you can also get it through Hoover's World, uh, my guide to retailing, which really covers all the principles of retailing and talks about the major players. Um, I wrote a book some years ago called The Art of Enterprise. It's available through Hoover's World if you click on the button about my books and classes and things. But I'm always uh, I always love hearing from people and their thoughts and comments. And, uh, and again, particularly uh, lear learning lessons of history. I kind of uh, find that as my own kind of unique niche in the whole world of uh, business ed education and edification. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, Gary, it's been a joy to get you to know you over the, the podcast. So thank you once again. There'll be lots of links in the, the show notes uh, to all the books that, that, that you've inspired us with and to your own recent book, which is very impressively is still sitting at five-star average rating. So maybe on another podcast, you can tell us how you, how you write such great books as well. <laughs> uh, so we, we're eager to know. Um, I want to thank, to your earlier point, uh, Chad, I want to thank Dave from Amsterdam who wrote us in some feedback to the Jeff Bezos show. So it was extremely inspirational and he really loved the flywheel effect that we broke down. And I have to thank you for that, Chad, because you were just going deep on that one and how we really pulled out the customer obsession that, that Jeff spoke about. Um, so thank you to Dave. He's, he's really interested um, as well on how companies can do more experimentation. Uh, so we will uh, we'll get into that theme. We may even pick, I've got in mind, we a couple of entrepreneurs who are quite big on this we might dive into how to conduct experiments, how to run Skunk Works, and all that kind of kind of good stuff. So stay tuned, Dave, and and thanks thanks for your feedback. 
So swinging it back over to you, Chad, um, boy, a big show, lots that we covered. I've got to ask if, if you're taking out just a couple of things from what we discussed with Gary uh, today and, and really getting into the world of Fred Smith and FedEx, what are the big three that you're taking home? Uh, big three. I think the aspiration to be as well-read and a student of history, I think, I think that really hit home with all of us. I think that that goes a lot uh, towards explaining how Fred Smith has been so, you know, long lasting there at at FedEx. So, I, you know, I'm committed to continuing this investigation alongside you uh, as, we, as we try and break down, you know, uh, more and more innovators and, and companies. Mm. I love that one, too, Chad. That was that was awesome. I think. Um, you know, one of the things that, and I, I have to credit Gary for this, the writing things down, I, I have to, this really confirmed my belief in the power of writing as a way to clarify your thoughts. I loved the fact that he conducted these three different studies to make sure of the product market fit that really kind of, it was a bit of a punch in the face. It's like, yeah, because I hardly meet anyone that's that sure of a product idea. Um it's it's truly uh, some absolute timeless classic truths to entrepreneurship and innovation. So yeah, really fantastic. Um, so Chad, where where can everyone find uh, the show notes and uh, what are your thoughts about who we should do next? Oh, I don't know. I uh, I saw your list of people who who we should do. I I'm actually being a you know a student in chicago for 4 years and actually having worked at harpo studios i'm fascinated by oprah and her story mm. um mm. but you've also got you know we've also got some really great uh names queued up like bill gates astro teller from google tim o'reilly from o'reilly media the, i mean these are all people and melinda gates mm. and the gates foundation mm. um you know so we'd love to to hear from you guys the listeners and who'd like us to to, to focus on next. If you like Oprah, have you ever heard of Madam C.J. Walker? No, I have not. Yeah, I'm just going to give you some, you know, throw some bait <laughs> out there for you guys. Look her up, Madam C.J. Walker, 100 oh, wow. years ahead of Oprah, wow, something wow, wow. like that. That sounds great. Madam C.J. Walker. Okay. Well, there you have it, folks. That's a wrap for our Fred Smith and FedEx show. Uh, check us out at Moonshots. .io. Gary, thank you. What what book are you going to be reading uh, this evening? What's on the reading list? I sit right here and I have uh, two from Amazon today and four from bookstores yesterday and about 15 others. If you read my book, you'll find out I rarely spend more than 15 to 30 minutes with a book. I figured out a system to suck the information out of them pretty efficiently. So I'm always reading four or five, but at the same time, I also have a 1960s survey of American consumer oh uh, preferences uh, that I'm going through. So um, I'm always trying to gather information and figure out how I can tie it to something I already know because that's how it. you remember I love it. it. I feel that my my deep dive into the functional requirements of an ad admin system, which is a huge piece of software we're building at the moment, pales into comparison to your 1960s uh, customer preference. You got to do it both, baby. You got to do it both, long-term and short-term. Um, are you still, uh, you're still on vacation technically, even though you're uh, recording a show with us? 
Yes, yes, I am. All but right. uh, it was more than worth it. Uh, okay. Thank you so much to, to both of you. Great. Well, thank you to you both. And that's a wrap for the, the Fred Smith Show here on the Moonshots podcast. Check us out on moonshots.io. Thanks, everyone.